I'm going to have you turn to First Peter. That's where we were last week. And uh, Peter writes to these Christians who are about to suffer under the Neronian persecution. He writes these words. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's what we began to look at last week, and we're going to continue on this morning. Every Christian is a recipient of God's grace. Now, there's a common grace that the whole world experiences, where God sends the sunshine and the rain on the just and the unjust, but we're talking about the grace that saves you. So every Christian is a recipient of that grace, and following that grace is peace with God. Peace with God. You experience that peace. But what does this grace and peace look like in my life when I receive it from God in the fullest measure? That's what he says here. May it be yours, grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Is, for example, this grace and peace going to be sufficient to see these Christians through who are about to enter this terrible time of persecution, suffering even the laying down of their lives. And also, is this grace and peace going to be sufficient for what you are now going through, as well as what you soon will find yourself going through? Because all of us are on this journey, and we realize, boy, I need something from God. So is this grace and peace going to be sufficient for you? Well, last week we heard Paul's testimony about that. He had that thorn in the flesh, whatever that might have been. It might have been his eyesight. It could have been something else. He pled with God to take it away, and God said, no. The Lord said, no, I'm not taking it away. By the way, you and I do that. We ask God to change things in our life, and sometimes he's what? He says, no. No, it's not going to change. In fact, it's going to be even getting worse. And Jesus responded, though, and here's what Paul says. Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for Power. Power. We like to have more power in our lives. Power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul acted upon those words and he burst forth in praise to God saying, Then most gladly, therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Boy, that's a, that's a big step from here to over there to be able to say that for you and me. Most gladly, rather, I'll boast about my weaknesses. Why? That the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Consider those last words. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Boy, how many Christians would be willing to be there. But that's what he says here. That's God's grace at work in the midst of your troubles, my troubles, our trials, our aches and pains, our setbacks and disappointments as well. And because of that, God's grace fills you with this peace, no matter what you find yourself going through. Now, either it works or it doesn't. And I believe that God... With what his word says, it does work, and Paul was proof of that. But how then can I receive this grace and peace in the fullest measure? 
How do I receive it in the fullest measure? Well, we looked last week at this first point. Grace and peace in fullest measure comes by being chosen by God the Father. It all starts there. It comes by your and my being chosen by God the Father. Last week we looked at that, what the Bible had to say about this doctrine we call election. By the way, do I understand it? No. It's really incomprehensible. I mean, it's trying to reconcile two major points and it's like I can't get them to work together. And yet God declares it and therefore I rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing. So just because you may not agree with me and I don't agree with you on some things regarding this doctrine election, it's still there and we're forced to some extent to wrestle with it. And then it says here, and I hope you caught this, that when the Bible talks about the foreknowledge of God, it does not mean that God merely knows the future and therefore he decrees something. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I know why people get saved. And that God chose them because God knows all things, right? We'd agree with that. He knows all things. And he saw exactly what I was going to do at seven or six years of age. He saw exactly how that was all going to work out. That I was going to realize I was a sinner. I was going to realize I was going to go to hell in that condition. I didn't want to do that. And so I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And God said, aha, I'm all-knowing. I see that. Therefore, Bill's, I'm going to choose him. No, that is not at all what foreknowledge means used in Scripture. It means God decreed it before anything about you happened. It's not that He knows it. It happens because He decreed it. Well, we looked at the process of election in the Old Testament last week. And we just, we really went, flew over the whole top of this, if you please. But we looked at that. We started, for example, with Abraham. Now, we find, according to Joshua 24, that Abraham, he came out of a family of idol worshipers. As far as I know, other than maybe Melchizedek, there wasn't anybody around that believed in the one true God. And God stepped into the midst of Abraham's life, and he revealed himself to him, and he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and so forth. I'm going to bless the nations through all of you. And so, therefore, Abraham left Ur of Chaldeans, and that's what you call election. God said, Abraham, I've got plans for you. This is how it's going to work out. Wow. And then we went on with the nation of Israel. And we said, God didn't choose the nation of Israel because, whoa, this is an incredible nation. I can see that the nation of Israel is going to really follow me and obey me and worship me. Are you kidding? It didn't take very long. And in fact, God says, I didn't choose you out of all the nations because of something I saw in you. Not at all. Rather, he saw they were going to rebel against him, and he would have to judge both the north, the ten tribes to the north, uh, going into the uh, Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C., and he saw that about a hundred and some years later, he'd have to do the same thing with Judah and Benjamin in the south. And even when his son came, what happened? They rejected him. Yet God says, nonetheless, I chose you. We saw that there in that. And then we talked a little bit about those Canaanite nations. And God said, go in and annihilate every man, woman, and child. You think, wow, wait a minute. Shouldn't some of them have gotten saved? I mean, shouldn't they, weren't they part of the chosen there? I mean, how could God do that? And boy, we wrestle with that. How could God say, go in and wipe every man, woman, and child out after their iniquity had been to the fullest, as he told Abraham he'd wait 400 years for it to happen? We also saw Jeremiah. And what does Jeremiah say? He said, God... Chose, he said, God came to me and said, I chose you when you're still in your mother's womb. 
whoa, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Didn't Jeremiah have to do something? Didn't he have to say, I have a heart for God. I want to be, I want to be faithful. I want to serve. No, he just said, I've chosen you for, from your mother's womb. Then we moved into the New Testament and looked a little bit about this issue of election or chosen there. And we saw there in the New Testament, Jesus' declaration concerning those who would get saved. That's you and me. What did he say? In John chapter 6, he declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. By the way, you like human free will? I do too. And guess what? With our free will, we always turn away from God. That's what we do. We're dead in trespasses and sins, and we never turn to him. He's the one that has to come after us and make that change, causing us to draw him, to turn to him. And so no one comes to the Father unless uh, he be drawn uh, to the comes to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he went on and said, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And then he just before going to the cross, he prayed. And what did he do? What did he pray? He said, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me. I pray for those Thou hast given me, for they are thine. And listen to the Apostle Paul's thoughts on God's electing those who will get saved. He says in Ephesians, and you probably know it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he chose us in him in Christ before the foundation of the world. What? That was a long time ago, folks. I'd say well over 6,000 years ago. And what does he say? Just as he chose you and me before the foundation of the world. That's that whole thing of election again. We also read in Acts 13.48 that when Paul preached the gospel to those in Antioch, the scriptures state, And as many as have been pointed to eternal life believed. Those are staggering words. It's interesting what people will do in their gymnastics to get out over this problem of election. I said, I can't reconcile it. I just accept what God states there uh, at face value there. Only those who are pointed to eternal life believe. In fact, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul tells us that God set him apart from his mother's womb, just like Jeremiah. There was another one set apart from his mother's womb, or in the mother's womb. That's John the Baptist. I mean, he received the Holy Spirit while still in the mother's womb. What a work of God. I don't understand it. I'm just thankful I can stand here before you, and I'm sure you see it out there today. I'm so thankful that you have come to save in faith that God chose you. We also look, though, at those thought-provoking words of Paul recorded for us in Romans 9 through 11. And I want us to look again at Romans 9, 14 through 23. Frankly, the words there are straightforward. But you won't like them. You won't understand them. I won't understand them. But I'm going to praise and glorify God because of what he says there, because I believe it at face value. So here's what he says in Romans 9, 14 through 23. What shall we say then? And I'm, I'm cutting right in the middle of this. He's already talking about Moses and Pharaoh. There is no injustice with God. Okay, let's settle that one. Okay, no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't like these next words. 
I don't like them at all. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. So it's not in his will, it's not on what he does, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. How how come? To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Okay, what are you going to say? Well, you're going to say to to Paul then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, Paul says, wait a minute, Paul, this is not the answer I want to hear from you, the great apostle Paul, the great statesman, the great missionary, the great theologian. For who resi- On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God... What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured? He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And Paul says, why did he do that? And he did that so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Do I understand that? No. Do I accept it? Yes. By the way, do you want the Lord to come back? Do you want Him to come back before this service is over? That's all right. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You know why the Lord may not come back before this service is over? Because He has vessels of mercy out there and maybe in here that He says, I'm going to bring them to saving faith before I come back. Isn't that great? And aren't you glad He waited on you? And then we move a little further here. What about Revelation? You get to chapter 7, and I'm going to tell you something. You try to get Jewish people saved today. The worst thing that they can do is accept Jesus as their Savior and as their Messiah. I mean, their families will have their funeral for if they do that. I mean, that is anathema to them. The worst thing, and yet you get to Revelation chapter 7. I think by that time, all the true believers are taken out of here, the church we call it. They're gone. Not the Baptist church, the redeemed church. It's gone. And then there's nobody left. And God says, all right, before the seven-year tribulation begins, I need some Billy Grahams. I need some evangelists. I need some people who are going to proclaim the gospel. And the Holy Spirit moves on 144,000 Jews. And boom, overnight they get saved. I would call that election. I'd call that a sovereign work of God. Amazing. So grace and peace come to you in fullest measure by your being chosen by God the Father. Now that's a quick review that we covered last Sunday. We come now to the second major point in our outline. Grace and peace in fullest measure, keep that in mind, in fullest measure come by being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says there in 1 Peter 1, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You're going to see all three persons of the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in this grace and and peace and fullest measure becoming yours and mine. 
When God chooses to save a person, He sanctifies that person. In other words, you have to belong to God if you're going to experience the fullness of His grace causing His peace to flood your life. You've got to belong to Him. A lot of people have no peace because you know why? They don't belong to God. They've never been sanctified. Well, number one in your outline, what it means for the Holy Spirit to sanctify a person or object. Since we use that word sanctify, what it means for the Holy Spirit to sanctify a person or object. The word sanctify comes from the Greek word hagias. You're probably familiar with hagias. The word means to set apart, to make holy. By the way, you can see that's a noun form there. The word saint is hagias. And I think it's amazing that God, that Paul, God through Paul, calls, calls you and me who are sanctified, who are saved, saints. Did you know you don't have to wait until you die? You don't have to wait until you do two miracles? <laughs> Some of you are going to have a long wait if that's the case. But I'll tell you, you want, the thing is, the moment you got saved, you got sanctified, set apart and belong to God, He calls you Hagias, a saint. Now, I know some of you have tarnished halos. We'll have to deal with that a little later on here. Okay. We address the third person. This is an interest to me. We address the third person of the Trinity, the Godhead, as the Holy Spirit. We're so common with that term. Some of us, I think, think that that is his first name, Holy, and Spirit the second part of it. No, it is a a characteristic of what he and who he is. He is holy. He is absolutely separated from sin and evil and is completely devoted to his own glory, being fully God and being absolutely perfect. And that's why he is called holy, Holy Spirit. Would that we would be more horrified by our own sin when we realize that this third person of the Trinity who is called, characterized by Holy, the Holy Spirit permanently dwells within us. What a difference that should make in our thought life, our words, our motives, our actions, when Holy Spirit of God dwells permanently in your life and my life. If He does not dwell in you, then you don't belong to God. You have not been separated sanctified unto God. In the Old Testament, God had the Israelites, you remember, build the tabernacle and all that furnishing, furniture and furnishings that was in the tabernacle. There was the outer court with the, the uh, altar uh, uh, the uh, altar, and then uh, the laver there. And then there were the two parts called the holy place where the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense were. And then the holy place, which was divided by that heavy curtain. All of this, God said, belongs to me. The priests that have been separated as a first fruits unto me, they have ministry there, but the people, the common people did not. But they would come there to worship God. What's interesting to me is this. He says, they are holy. They are separated. They are sanctified. They belong to me. What's interesting now is that you belong to him. What does he say over in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20? Or do you not know that your body is what? The temple. The temple. The hagias. The naos, literally. The temple 
of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's an amazing transition. From the tabernacle, which only the priests could win, the, the, the Levites, from that all the way over to he says, now you are my temple. You have been separated, sanctified. You belong to me. Now, I can't educate you. I wish I could, but some of you refuse to be educated. This room here is not the, what am I going to say? Sanctuary. I know you like that. Holy of Holies right here. No, it's not. It's a building and it's a room. Now, it's dedicated to be used for the glory of God. It is not the sanctuary. That's why I call it a what? Worship center. Worship center. We even let you have coffee here. You know why? Because we want you to stay awake when I'm preaching. We even had food in here. But this is not a sanctuary. You know why I say that? You need to get this in your head. Me too. You, your body, is the Holy of Holies. It is the sanctuary where God the Holy Spirit dwells. And what a difference that makes when you leave it. You know, we think we should be reverent in here, but guess what? You leave the room, that door, and you go out there, and maybe you're not so reverent anymore, right? Because you forget you are the Holy of Holies. Well, number two, the Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying. The Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying. Our text says concerning believers and Christians who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. If you're chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world, then sometime after you have been physically born, there's got to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what does He do? Well, He sanctifies you. He makes you God's redeemed child. He causes you to be born of the Spirit. Born again spiritually, if you please. You become a child of God. He will cause you to be uh, uh, regenerated. Your dead spirit, He will regenerate your dead spirit, giving you eternal life. Then, when this happens, Jesus Christ becomes your life, and you are given His Righteousness. That's Romans chapter 6. We spent a lot of time looking at that. How does this happen though? How does this sanctifying work of the Spirit take place? How did it happen in your life? It'd be wonderful. We took some time for some testimonies. How did it happen in my life? Well, God the Holy Spirit always uses the scriptures which He is the author of. He uses the Word of God. That's why when you witness, you should always use what? The Word of God. Even if you can't win the argument, then share the Word of God. Let the Holy Spirit win the argument with His Word. He always uses it. And Jesus tells us in that written Word, He says, He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, and He came after the Lord ascended back up into heaven, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the world or the ruler of this world has been judged. Notice it starts with conviction. It starts with conviction. 
You have to know that you are a sinner separated from God and His wrath is hanging over your head. You need to know that the wages of sin is death and if you die in that condition, you're going to be cast into Hades and ultimately you're going to end up in the lake of fire we call hell. The Bible calls hell. That's what happens. It starts with that conviction. I didn't get saved until I knew I needed to be saved. Until I knew what my condition was like. And only God can change your condition. Boy, I don't know how to get that across when I'm dealing with people who are unsaved because they always want to do something. That's why we hate this doctrine of election. I want to do something. I want to try harder. I want to be religious. I want to get baptized. I'll even go forward and pray a prayer. We always want to do something. God says you can't do anything. When you come to that desperate situation and condition, then turn to me and I'll do it. I'll do it all. That's the amazing thing about salvation. So only God can change your condition. You must be born again, and the Holy Spirit's the one who brings about that spiritual birth. And here's how Paul put that, describes that birth in Titus 3, 5. He says he saved us. That's past tense. That's sanctification. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, so it wasn't anything we did. How did he save us then? But according to his mercy. Didn't we see that in Romans 9? By the washing of regeneration. Don't let those words throw you. Regeneration means to infuse in you life. And he, he, he likens it to being washed. But the Holy Spirit comes upon you, in you, and gives you regeneration. He gives you life. Your dead spirit becomes alive. And renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, you're creating the image of God. And now he improves, he, re, he renews that. Paul further describes that process in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When he writes these words, In him... Ephesians 1, 13 40, in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, you also, now get this, you also, after listening, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, so it started with what? You had to hear something, or maybe read it. You listened to the gospel of of truth, the salvation. And what happened after that? He says, after listening to that message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed. Believed. You said, yes! That's it! I'm lost! One heartbeat from eternal damnation. The wrath of God hangs over my head even though everything looks great right now. I believe what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit's convicting me of that. And he says, now I believe I'm going to embrace you, Jesus, and what you did on the cross for me. And what happened? You were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now listen to the rest of it. The rest of it. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So that's a down payment. That you're experiencing and enjoying a taste right now. Listen to this. With a view to the redemption, and get this part, of God's own possession. That's sanctification. He says, you now belong to me. You're my child, my son, my daughter. And I've got glorious plans for you. With a view, as it says, to the regeneration, I'm sorry, redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This is the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying you, but it doesn't stop with Him just making you God's possession. His redeemed child, His redeemed son. The Holy Spirit who now dwells permanently in you, making your body God's temple, continues that sanctifying work. He continues to make you holy.
The greatest truth ignored by so many Christians is the indwelling presence of God the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? How easy to go through life day after day. Maybe you pray, maybe you read the Bible, but you like move out, not even thinking and dwelling on the very presence of God in you. That's what makes you different from all other people that are unsaved. God dwells in you And He is your life. We read this great truth on the pages of Scripture, but then we go away and act like the Holy Spirit of God is nowhere around. Here's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and you're familiar with that passage from our Come Grow With Me series. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and that's the Scriptures. We're beholding the glory of the Lord in the Scriptures. Here's what he says, are being transformed. Isn't that good? Is that what's happening to you? Is that what's happening to me? Am I being, in the present tense, transformed? That's metamorphosis. You know, the butterfly thing happened here. Transformed into the same image from a little bit of glory to even more glory to even more glory to even more glory. How's it happening, he says. I'll tell you how. Transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Huh. The Holy Spirit's doing that word. And listen to what Paul further says about God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you over Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. this Romans chapter 8, just a quick run through parts of it. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life. There it is. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Wow. That's what he said. The Holy Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Dropping down to verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Listen. Notice he said life to your mortal body. He's not talking about when you get to the glorified body. Why? Because mortal must what? Put on immortality. No, he's talking about he gives life to your mortal body right now. No matter what your mortal body may be going through, as Paul said, I'm going through this thorn in the flesh, weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. All right, but he says, God, the Holy Spirit in me is giving life. That's, those are good words. That's an encouraging work of the Holy Spirit as he works in your my life even now. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans 8. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is all that sanctifying work that he's doing in you and me right now. And just another sampling there in Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Isn't that true? You get in situations you just don't know the right words. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. That's not speaking in tongues. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he has a language he gives to God, if you please, being God himself in your behalf. And God, of course, responds. So not only does the Holy Spirit save you by God's grace and fill your life with peace with God... He continues 
giving you the fullest measure of God's grace and peace as you continue to grow in that grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says here, grace and peace in fullest measure comes by being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I would ask you this, myself. Do you understand that if you are chosen by God, you've also been set apart for God by God the Holy Spirit as being holy, as being God's own possession? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Boy, I hope that's a foundational to your my growth. I hope that we are thinking about that truth. And now thirdly, grace and peace in fullest measure come by being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Wow. That's what he says there. Chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace and peace in fullest measure come by being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Number one, this is essential to our covenant with God. If this has not happened, you're not in a covenant. You're not saved. You do not belong to God. Let's look at that. God's covenant with Israel under the Mosaic law. This is very insightful. God's covenant with Israel under the Mosaic law. You will remember that when God came and delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, they were slaves there in bondage. The final play before it hit, he said to them, you are to take a lamb, keep the lamb up. It's kind of like a a family pet now. Enjoy the lamb. And then, I think it was on the 14th of Nisan, he said, you cut the throat of the lamb, take that blood, and you apply it to the doorpost and the lintel. That's what he said. And then, of course, they were to roast the lamb and eat it with their loins girded up, ready to leave Egypt. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. But where the blood has not been applied, the firstborn will die, the firstborn male, of both uh, men and animals. And, of course, that's what happened. Of course, at that point, Pharaoh let them go. So God takes them through the Red Sea, doesn't he? They are stopped there. Uh, Here comes Pharaoh's army because God's going to be glorified in the destruction of Pharaoh there. And he opens up the Red Sea, and they're like baptized into Moses as they go through the Red Sea. And then what God does, you know what he does? He leads them out to meet him at Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Well, Moses was told to go up there to the top of the mountain where he met with God and he gave him the Ten Commandments. Who was the first to break the Ten Commandments? That's a joke, you know. Moses broke them, didn't he? He came down. So, they received the Ten Commandments. And now they're going to enter into, listen to me, a covenant with God. The God of the universe who delivered them out of Egypt is going to enter into a covenant with them. We call that the Mosaic Covenant. It was a conditional covenant. What I mean by that, they said, God says, 
You agree to do this. You agree to obey my Ten Commandments. I will bless you. You break my Ten Commandments and go after other gods. I will curse you. It was all conditional. Now remember, the Mosaic Law was given to show what? That man could never earn his salvation. Something is so vitally wrong, there's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. God has to provide it himself. So they enter into a covenant. Now listen to this. This is so interesting about the Mosaic Covenant, that conditional covenant, and how God chose to ratify it. It's found in Exodus 24, 7 and 8. You want to write that in your notes? Under point A, God's covenant with Israel under the Mosaic Law. It's Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, that's the Ten Commandments, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here's the covenant, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Great. What happened next? So Moses took the blood, here it is, and sprinkled it on the people. He sprinkled the blood on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That brings us to the next part of your outline. God's covenant with the Christian today. That means you and me. God's covenant he makes with the Christian today. When you placed your faith, remember God chose, the Holy Spirit took you and drew and sanctified you. When you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, God entered into, and listen to this, an unconditional covenant. He knew if it would be a conditional one, you would what? Can you tell me what you would do? You would break it. That's right. God's not going to let this depend on you. He who chose you, the Holy Spirit who drew you and sanctified you and made you holy says, I will not let this depend upon you. Now there's a condition here, not a condition, but a situation we'll see in just a moment. He said, I am making an unconditional covenant with you. Since you can do nothing on your part to save yourself, you must rely completely on God to do the saving. And he does so through the Son's atonement on your behalf. He not only saves you, dear ones, listen to me, he not only saves you, Get these words, and some of you just can't get them. You won't accept them. But it's what God says. He not only saves you, He keeps you saved. It does not depend upon you. But you'll see a point here that you need to deal with with me as well as we go on. But you will notice that this unconditional covenant you entered into with God does bring about, listen to me, it does bring about the obedience of faith. You've got to see that. This unconditional covenant that God entered into with you, in other words, when the Holy Spirit came to you and convicted you of your sin and your need of Christ, and you put your faith into Him, it brings about the obedience of faith. I'm not talking about perfection here. Except God says, I will always see you as perfect in my son. That is scriptural. But in the practice, he knows you're going to be struggling with this. Obeying sometimes, disobeying, and so forth. But it always brings about the obedience of faith. I can't say that emphatically enough. If you're genuinely saved, there's got to be a heart that desires to be obedient to God. If you have no heart to obey him, then dear one, you are not saved. 
It's that simple, that clear. When the Holy Spirit sanctifies a person, bringing that person to saving faith, that person is said to be what? Sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, resulting in their obedience to God. We will look at this issue of obedience in just a moment. By the way, you saw it in Romans 6 when we were there before. But first, we need to see the importance of our being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Number two, this is essential for our peace with God. This is essential for our peace with God. You see, all unsaved persons, no matter how morally wonderful and how sacrificial and good and kind they are, God says, there's hostility between me and them. I I accept nothing out of the flesh, nothing out of that old Adamic nature. I only accept my son. That's the only one I accept is my son, his life, his righteousness, and I freely offer that to you. Okay? Okay? You have no peace with God if you've not put your faith in His Son. Peter speaks of our receiving this grace and peace in fullest measure here. He says God's grace and peace can only be ours through the blood of Jesus Christ there in verse 2. Here's some scripture you can put down in your notes. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus. That is God's declaration that my son is deity. He is fully God. Not like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Not a God. He is fully God. And through him, not through your help, through him to reconcile all things to himself. And here it is. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Next verse, Hebrews 10, 14, and 19 through 23. Hebrews 10, 14, and 19 through 23. For by one offering, I love it. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Did we not say that if God chose you, the Holy Spirit comes and he puts life into you, he regenerates you, and he sanctifies you. And what does he say here? For by one offering he is perfected for all time. Those who are sanctified, a once for all act by God in your life and my life. In other words, those who got saved. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, listen, in the Old Testament you wouldn't dare to go into the tabernacle. Maybe that first part but I believe it was only the priests that were there, you know, on the brazen altar to uh, sacrifice the animal for you. But he says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through, his, through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That means God is going to receive you because you belong to him. Having our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's he saying? You got saved. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit took you, sanctified you, made you holy, gave you Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' life, and now you can come into the very presence of God any time you desire because of that. Let me add Hebrews 12, 22 and 24. 22 through 24. The writer of Hebrews makes a contrast between 
the people under the Mosaic law who would come to Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and all that. And he makes a contrast between you and me today. Here's what he says about you and me. But you have come to Mount Zion. He's going to take you right into heaven now. This is great. He's going to take you and me who are redeemed right into heaven. He said, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Here we are going right into the presence of God, you and me, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. That's you and me who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, we're coming to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's redeemers. I mean, sorry, that's the redeemed people that have died and are already home with the Lord. To spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we're coming to Jesus, listen, to the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Here it is. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from what? You finish it. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't you love that? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I would ask this morning, are you sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he says, that's what's happened. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and God says, I accept you. I not only accept you, you're my son, you're my daughter, you are heirs with my son. It's a glorious salvation, is it not? But that brings us to the next part, number three, our obedience. Don't miss this. Our obedience results from being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. There really is no such thing as being saved and just living in continual disobedience. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. You can't be saved and just continue living a life of rebellion against God. Number A, your salvation brings about this obedience. Your salvation... I'm not talking about the fact that you're going to be perfect. That's not what we're talking about. But the heart desires to please God. The heart desires to obey God. Your salvation brings about this obedience. Did you know that the major theme of the book of Romans is your salvation? Probably the most important book in all the Bible is Romans. You wonder why I spend so much time there. Well, it deals with your salvation, my salvation. Romans 1.5. Paul says he and the other apostles were sent to proclaim the gospel in order. Now listen, they were sent to proclaim the gospel in order to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Did you get that? He proclaimed the gospel. The other apostles proclaimed the gospel in order to bring about the obedience of faith. He doesn't stop there. Romans 6, 17. We're back to the sixth chapter. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, I mean, you were given over to sin. Here it is. You became obedient from the heart. Something has changed here. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. That means what the apostles were teaching and Jesus taught to which you were committed. Now, here's a key. 
to which you were committed. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm committing myself. No, it means God committed you to that. He took you and he committed you to that. How? Well, the one who authored the scriptures decided he's going to live right in your life and my life. Permanently. He committed you to that teaching. And then Romans chapter 15, verse 18. We're not even through here. Just move through the book of Romans. Romans 15, 18, Paul states that what Christ accomplished through him resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. It always results in an obedient heart. Young people, children, I know we say, please, and we'll go to daily vacation Bible school here soon, and we'll say, we want you to ask Jesus in your heart, and that's wonderful. We want you to do that, ask Jesus in your heart. But listen, if it has not led you to the desire to obey God with your life, then it didn't take. It didn't take. And you're being deceived. And so many young people today, they grow up and say, well, I remember back in church, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, maybe Sunday school, maybe it was a daily vacation Bible school, a backyard Bible club, whatever it is. And so they asked Jesus to come into the heart and they wonder, what's wrong? I'm the same as I was forever back there. I'll tell you why, because you need to turn and say, Lord, please, please have mercy on me and save me. I need to be saved. I want to be forgiven. I want the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it does not mean that you and I are going to live perfect lives. No, we're going to struggle with this issue of obedience. But from your heart, you will long to obey the Lord. If something is wrong, if that's not the case, and you're one step from eternal damnation. But let's go on. Paul says, lest you miss it. You missed it in chapter 1 when I wrote you Roman people, that believers there. You missed it in chapter 6. You missed it down in chapter 15. Let's, let's wrap up the book. So now he's going to close his letter to the Romans. Romans 16, 25 through 27. This is how he closes the book. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. So he knows this works. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested... And by, that's the church. The, he's calling out these people to be saved through faith in Christ alone. And by the scriptures of the prophets, so you'll find it there in the Old Testament as well. According to the commandment of the eternal God. So here's the commandment here. Has been made known to all the nations. Now here it goes. This is how he closes the book. The commandment, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made to, known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. Leading to the obedience of faith. And then he says, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. That's how he closes the book. You know how Peter closes his little epistle? First Peter. Number B in your outline. Peter commands us to stand firm in the grace of God. He commands you and me to stand firm in the grace of God. That's obedience. That's just obeying God. Reading the scriptures, reading the book of First Peter, and saying, "Okay, I'm going to Lord, with your help, I intend to walk in obedience." First Peter five twelve, you can write that down. First Peter five twelve, Peter says, "I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is here. It is this is the true grace of God." And then he commands, "Stand firm in it." This is the true. What is the true grace of God? These five chapters I've written. They're from God. Then he says, stand firm in it. 
That's a heart that says, I want to obey God. I want to grow. I want to please Him. Peter began this letter with these words, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. God never gives us a stingy portion, does He? I mean, He's a magnanimous, generous God. He completely saves you, making you His very own possession, His son, His daughter. Though this salvation you possess is God's unconditional covenant that He's made with you, still this salvation leads to the obedience of faith. Your walk of fellowship with Him. An obedient life always accompanies genuine salvation. Let me say it again. An obedient walk or life always accompanies genuine salvation. Again, it doesn't mean that you're going to always perfectly obey God, but it does mean that your life is characterized by that desire to obey God. And when you sin, you feel miserable, you feel bad, you feel horrible. You say, God, please forgive me. He says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Let's walk in fellowship together here on out. Does God write these words to you? This is how we close. Does God write these words to you? To those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You'll notice all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are 100% committed to your receiving all the grace you need, all the peace you need, until you get fully, completely home. That's our God. That's the greatness of our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would pray that you would help us moment by moment, day in and day out, to more and more comprehend what it means to experience your grace, your peace, in the fullest measure. Lord, we often let down, fall down, struggle, get frustrated, get angry, get upset, defect, if you please, a little bit, because we don't experience what you want us to experience. But having looked at this portion that those you've chosen and you foreordained that they would be yours, the Holy Spirit has come and sanctified. They, you've set us apart, making us holy. Indwelt with you, Holy Spirit. Indwelt with you, Lord Jesus Christ. God, you are now our Father. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And now it causes us to live a life of obedience, to desire that to grow in your grace and knowledge. I pray that you'll use this portion in our lives until we're finally home. In Jesus, your name I pray. Amen.